Holy Spirit, come and turn our eyes to Jesus here this morning as we come not to our own opinions and feelings, but to the Word of the living God, the, the Word of the triune God that stands as an authority over our lives and is everything that we need for life and godliness. We admit that we need sometimes to change our thinking and to be renewed in our minds. I pray that that would occur this morning on this topic, but as always, that we would be turning from sin and self and we would see the glories of Christ and the beauty of our adoption as co-heirs with Him. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. For those visitors, typically it's our pattern to work consecutively through books of the Bible verse by verse. Uh, we're going through First Timothy, the book of Luke, and Deuteronomy here at this church. But I, as I was praying uh, I was led to do something different, and that is uh, come biblically to the topic of abortion this Sanctity of Life Sunday. Um, you will probably not be able to keep up with the passages that we turn to. Go ahead and give it a shot if you like but at least write the references down. And there is a bulletin handout that has some of those verses on there, but not all of them. Uh, so that hopefully will be a help to you, but at least get the references down as we move through this passage. Since the Supreme Court decision... Roe v. Wade in 1973, nearly 60 million children have been put to death through abortion. Abortion is any action, kids maybe don't know what that word means, abortion is any action that intentionally causes the death and the removal from the womb of an unborn child. That's Wayne Grudem's definition. The reality is that from the time 1973, since it's the Supreme Court decision of Roe v. Wade, the reality was that no laws prohibiting abortion can be enacted in the United States until now. In June of 2022, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, allowing individual states to ban abortion if they choose to do so, and there are Many, many states that are now restricting abortion and closing the mills 
like Planned Parenthood, thanks be to God, at large geographical regions of this country. But some states are doubling down and attempting to pass bills that codify radical right to abortion, and Minnesota is one of those states. There are three pieces of legislation that are being pushed forward. One is the Protective Reproductive Options Act that codifies the right to abortion through all nine months up to the moment of birth with unlimited abortion access. All nine months, any method of abortion, for any reason, no age restrictions. And there has been refusal in the political debates to adopt any amendments to protect women or minors or consider the impact on the unborn child, a refusal in the debates to ban partial birth abortion, a refusal to place any requirements or protections for minors, no age requirement, parental notification, etc., etc., etc. The Minnesota House passed this act that I just described just a few days ago, 69, 65, I think late Thursday after hours, after many, many hours of emotional debate, likely to go to the Senate this upcoming week. The second act is the how-to, the how-to of the Protective Reproductive Options Act that was just passed, the how-to that forces all Minnesotans to pay for abortion services through medical assistance. And the third act that HF91 deserves just a number repeals the law that's currently in place in Minnesota protecting a child born during an abortion procedure. A child is born alive and and there was a law called Born Alive Infants Protection Act that is being repealed or attempted to be repealed legalizing infanticide. This is our state of Minnesota with laws submitted and currently being passed that are radical on par with North Korean law. So this morning, in light of this and Sanctity of Life Sunday that is this Sunday, I was led to speak to you regarding the issue of abortion, and I will do that under three headings. Number one, we come to the Word of God, the biblical stance, the biblical stance. Does the government approval of abortion make it right in the eyes of God? What is our authority? Does current scientific thought or medical practice trump the Bible? Does feeling or experience or convenience trump the Word of God? Where do we find the issues for our life on ethics? All of the hard questions of life and death and everything in between. Is the Bible sufficient for us? Is it everything that we need for life and godliness? How do we know the mind of God on this issue, or frankly any issue, only 
in the Word of God. This is our authority, and in the Word of God we stand. And I have to believe that something as important as the life and death of an unborn baby would be absolutely settled without a doubt in the pages of Holy Scripture. You, will de- you decide by the time we get done with this first heading. If it is settled on the pages of Scripture, and the Bible is clear on this, then abortion is nothing less than murder. If the Bible fails to grant personhood to the unborn baby, or we'll call it baby, a fetus, if the Bible fails to grant personhood to the unborn fetus, then perhaps the premature extermination of such life is morally inconsequential. What does the Word of God say? So we're going to look at the Word of God under four headings or four lines of evidence, which you do not have in your notes, because I came up with it this morning. So, number one, number one, first notice the titles given to the unborn, the titles given. Now, if you're fast, you can turn to passages, and I'll turn to them. That'll buy you the time it takes me to turn to them. First, let's look at Genesis chapter 22. I don't think this is in your notes. Genesis 22, and find verse 22. We're going to be turning to lots of passages. Whoops, wrong passage. This is a good start. Genesis 25, verse 22. The context here is Rebecca and Isaac. And Rebecca being pregnant with twins in her womb, twins Jacob and Esau. So we read in Genesis 25, verse 22, but the children struggled together within her. She said, if it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So when you're looking at titles, passages that speak of unborn children in the Word of God, God uses the same words in Greek and Hebrew that He does for the unborn child and the child that is born. In this passage, the Hebrew word ben is used, the ordinary word for son or sons or children, used 4,900 times in the Old Testament. And is speaking of the unborn boys, Jacob and Esau, using the same word as that he would use for a baby that is born. And the twins here are given then personhood as nations struggling together. They're thought of as distinct persons, and they're thought of those distinct persons with predicted futures. Okay? For more evidence, I just want you to write down these these references, because I'm not going to turn to them myself, just the titles given. In the New Testament, the writers use the same Greek word for a, a child that has yet to be born, 
and then a postnatal child, a child that has been born. Let me give you two verses for that. Luke chapter 1, verse 41 says, When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And compare that to the book of Acts chapter 7, verse 19, that says this, It was He who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. So infants outside of the womb, the word for infants there is the same Greek word described about the baby leaping in the womb. And so God uses and speaks of these children with the, in the same way, with the same words, the same titles given. Consider secondly, um, the protections granted, the protections granted to the unborn. And for this, and to build on our first point, I want you to turn to Exodus. So you're probably still in Genesis, so just take a right and head to Exodus and find Exodus 21. Exodus 21, and find verse 4. Exodus 21, verse 4 says, if, a mas- if his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters and the wife and her children... Uh, shall belong to her master, and she and he shall go out alone. Okay, so there's sons and daughters, there's children mentioned there after birth. Now look down at Exodus 21, verse 22. Okay, same chapter, Exodus 21, 22. 22. If men struggle, so now men are fighting, as happens from time to time, If men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child, incidentally, the word child in verse 22 is the same word as used for the children outside of the womb after being born in verse 4 that I read. Same word. But let's think further. If men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judges decide. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. So did you see that? The, the mother and her own unborn child are given exactly the same legal protection. And Grudem notes that in other places of the Mosaic law, if someone accidentally causes the death of another person, there was no requirement to give life for life with accidental death. You just to flee to the city of refuge and on, on and on it goes. But Grudem says, quotes, for Israel, a law code 
that placed a higher value on protecting the life of a pregnant woman and her unborn child than the life of anyone else in Israelite society, end quotes. So notice the divine protection given. Third, let's look at the divine value, the divine value and care, the divine value and care given to the unborn child. And this will be a big section, so let's turn quickly. One of the oldest books in the Bible is the book of Job. So I want you to turn to Job chapter 31 as we consider the divine value and care given to the unborn. Job chapter 31. Verse 13. Job is writing and talking about how he has really honored his servants, his, his slaves, treated them well. Verse 13, trying to figure out why in the world God's punishing him, if you know the book. If I have despised the claim of my male or female slaves when they filed a complaint against me, what then could I do when God arises? And when he calls me to account, what will I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him and the same one fashion us in the womb? So Job should not despise any, any person's complaint, even his slaves, because we all have dignity and value before God. Why? Because human equality is based on God's sovereign knitting together in the womb. So whatever your social class, even the very lowest social class in any given culture has dignity because we are both formed by God and God will call us to account because of that. So the God of the universe has made both in the womb. They have value. He's given us life and Because God has made us, we have value. And that is why Job treats all people fairly, because all people are fashioned by God in the womb. Divine value in this passage, divine value in human qualities are given to the unborn fetus, right in that passage. And Job is still wondering, why in the world was I even born? And so if you go earlier in the book of Job, Job still is speaking about this in Job chapter 10 and verse 8. Job's like, man, I wish I wasn't born. Why was I even born? That's the context. If you know the book, you you understand what we're talking about here. Job chapter 10, verse 8. Your hands fashioned and made me all together. And would you destroy me? Remember now that you have made me as clay, and would you turn me into dust again? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese, clothe me with skin? Did you not clothe me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews? You have granted me life and loving kindness. Back in the womb, and your care has preserved my spirit. Job, who is suffering, 
is even lamenting he was even born. He's saying, God, you're the one who fashioned me and made me in the womb. You granted me life and loving kindness right now. Well, now look what you're doing to me now. The whole argument is based there about God granting, me, granting him life and loving kindness in the womb. Job. And what does that loving kindness look like? That care and loving kindness and life in the womb? Well, that brings us to the passage that Jason read, which bears reading again. So turn to Psalm 139 and find verse 13, and let's look at God's loving kindness and life and care and thought towards the unborn in Psalm 139 as we continue to consider divine care, loving kindness, value for the unborn. Psalm 139. So if I turn to it, you can try as well. Let's listen to God's loving kindness at work. Let's start at verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen, your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. All precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast the sum of them. Stop there. The eyes of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all over the unborn. His thoughts towards you and the unborn are more than the sands of the sea. God's plan is established for the unborn. God's precious thoughts, a vast sum of them, settle on the unborn. Our God is working like a master artist, forming and weaving skillfully, weaving wonderfully, and the result is incredible. And I've experienced it again. I'm a grandfather six weeks ago for the first time. My daughter lost her first, and I've lost three. And if you've known the pain of miscarriage, you know what we're talking about here. And the look on my daughter's face for 10 months, bearing the death of her child until God would release her and give her this blessing, and that pain will never ultimately be gone, right? But the joy to see this new baby, the joy that's surprised by love, to love this one like she does, that we have seen. And to see this little baby, this is God at work. This is God's artwork. How can we dis destroy God's beautiful piece of art? He's put his heart into it, his mind into it. The unborn baby is fearfully and wonderfully made, which is an understatement. Fourth line of evidence, biblically, is spiritual realities. Spiritual realities. This is going to be a bit of a long sermon. I apologize. Spiritual realities. 
Listen, there's three spiritual realities I want to unpack briefly um, that are affirmed for the unborn, okay? Now, there's spiritual calling, there's spiritual relationships, and there's spiritual nature. And they're all given to the unborn in the Word of God. Can these spiritual aspects that I'm about to talk about be applied to protoplasm that's not personhood? Ask yourself that question. So let's look at the first spiritual reality, the spiritual calling of God. Don't turn there if I don't. It's in your notes. Galatians 1 verse 15. Paul writes, But when God, who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. So Paul called from his mother's womb. Jeremiah called. Jeremiah 1 verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I knew you. Personhood. I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. And I have appointed you a prophet to the nation. Or Isaiah's call. Isaiah 49, verse 1, Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, He named me. All of these passages are beginning, and I've got more for you, to show that God can work in the lives of people before they are born. God sets apart. God knows. God consecrates. God appoints. God calls people. He knows people, not protoplasm. So there's the spiritual calling. And secondly, there's the spiritual relationships. And this one it would be good to see. So go to the book of Luke, and we'll be bouncing in Luke. And we've been there for a number of months. So your Bible probably flops right open to Luke. Luke chapter 1, verse 41. Okay? So the context is an excited young mother, Mary, uh, visiting Elizabeth. Traveling over, and we pick it up in verse 41. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 44. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 42, and she cried out with a loud voice and said, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? Hold on. The one in Mary's uterus is the Lord of Elizabeth? The little bunch of protoplastic cells, your Lord? We'll keep reading. For behold, when the sound of Mary's greeting... Reached my ears, the baby leapt in my womb for joy. Joy in John the Baptist. Filled with the Spirit in the womb. As Luke 1 verse 15 says, watch this, Luke 1 15, talking about John the Baptist who's leaping around for joy at the sound of Mary's voice who carried his Lord. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. 
John is called a baby. He's not protoplasm. He's filled with the Spirit of God. Only a person created in the image of God has a spirit which can connect and have relationship with God who is spirit-filled with spirit. But if you don't like John the Baptist and it's not enough for you, consider Jesus Christ in the womb of Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 35. The incarnation of Jesus Christ. Verse 35, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So, soon after Mary becomes pregnant, Elizabeth says, you're the mother of my Lord. And so the Word, the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. The word became flesh, and that did not begin when he was a newborn baby. He was Lord in the womb. He didn't begin when he was small and earned it in the temple in Jerusalem. It didn't begin when he's a child, teen, or adult. But the divine nature was joined to the human nature at the moment of conception in Mary's womb. That's why people are tumbling for joy and calling him Lord. Jesus was a genuine human being, nine months before his birth. He was the Lord, the God-man in the womb. I'm so glad someone didn't abort him. So, spiritual relationships. How about the spiritual nature of an unborn child? One verse, don't turn to it, Psalm 51, verse 5. Behold, David writes, about himself after his sin with Bathsheba. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Grudem says, well, quotes, David thinks of himself as having been a distinct human being, a distinct person from the moment of his conception, in quotes. That he, as a person, has a sin nature. Protoplasm doesn't have a sin nature. And by the way, if everyone has a sin nature, everyone needs a Savior. It's a survey of the sum of the biblical evidence. What a difference that is from a fetus, protoplasm, that's not viable which is subjective, even according to abortion advocates. And then the irony is, although this is slipping, the irony is the moment you slip through that eight-inch canal, you're somehow a person then, and you weren't five minutes ago. But that is illogical. And so they're saying, I guess it is. Then let's just go further. Let's be logical. It's the choice that determines the value. What a stark contrast to a sin nature at conception. God baptizing in the spirit before birth. God calling, appointing, knowing people before birth. God knitting together fearfully and wonderfully in the womb. The same words used for child, both Old and New Testament, for born and unborn, with just unbelievable legal protection for the unborn. What a stark contrast. And so what does God say about abortion? Abortion is nothing less 
than the brutal murder of a child created in the image of God. And let me tell you about it. I don't mean to shock and awe you, but I'm just hear me for a second. There are babies as we speak lying in garbage receptacles waiting for their bones to be ground to bits and then put in the refuse pile as medical waste. God forbids Israel from offering their children to Molech, the demonic God who demands the blood of human babies. Leviticus chapter 20. And Molech is denounced by the living God by name. And, but the spirit of Molech is at work in our generation even now, brothers and sisters. And it grieves the heart of God and it ought to grieve our heart as well. And we don't have a lot of time left, so let's move quickly quickly from the biblical stance to practical steps. What do we do about this? Practical steps. There are four that I want to highlight. Number one, teach people. Teach people. You can do this in three ways, at least three ways. This is not inclusive. Number one, we do this by preaching and teaching from the pulpit. We teach the Word of God. We We preach the whole counsel of God. You speak the biblical truth about the issue of abortion. If you need help, there's great resources. I went to an ethics pastor's conference this last year at the Shepherd's Theological Seminary. I've got a host of resources on ethics that I received at that conference. Would you like to check them out? Ruth has made it possible. We can check out my library at this church. So check it out. Check out some of these books. Maybe read on maybe Wayne Grudem's work on biblical ethics and and maybe get some of your questions answered. But teach, learn the truth and teach the truth of God. Second way you can teach people is teach them common sense. There's a lot of logic that we need to learn. We need to learn how to think on this issue. One bioethicist named Scott Klusendorf, a Christian bioethicist, says that a fetus differs from a newborn in only four ways. Sled, S-L-E-D, easy for Minnesotans to remember. Sled, here's the ways that they're different. Number one, size. Does this mean that large people are more valuable than small people? L, level of development. Is a 14-year-old girl with her reproductive system in place more human than a 4-year-old girl who lacks this? E, environment, S-L-E. E, do you change who and what you are based on your location? Are you less human when you were in the car, when you got to your office? How does the 8-inch trip through the birth canal make a fetus more human? D, sled, degree of dependence. D, is it okay to kill someone who is dependent on insulin or dependent on a pacemaker or dependent on their mother? It's common sense. It's the Word of God. He can educate people, which I like, as an imager through medical imaging. Ultrasound imaging is now 4D. Ultrasound machines help people meet their unborn babies. You can see the creases of the skin of the face. You can see the fingernails and the toenails. 
I saw pictures of a 28-week-old baby sleeping with its hands over the eyes with a peekaboo caption and dimples at 28 weeks. Among abortion-minded women who visited the Preg Pregnancy Resource Center in North Hills, California in 2006, the non-ultrasound clients chose to abort 61% of the time. Those who used ultrasounds only aborted 24.5% of the time in one study. So what else can we do? Number one, we can teach people. That's a practical step. Number two, you can oppose abortion. You can oppose abortion using constitutional legal means. Now, as Christian individuals, we can support legislative and legal means to end abortion. You can use your constitutional rights. I know, okay, you can use your constitutional rights of speech and press and petition and assembly. You can vote. You can stand outside the abortion clinic and pray and speak to people. You can call or meet your state senator or representative about the current proposed laws. You can go down today, today to the state capitol at 2 p.m. and march for life. But never stoop to illegal or dishonest methods in order to stop abortion. And whatever you do, remember that you must demonstrate the fruits of the spirit of the living God, the love of the Christ who died for you. And you must see those who support, promote, and perform abortions, not as the enemy, but as the mission field. Because what all these people need most is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you were no different than them, but the grace of God. And so you can abort, uh, oppose abortion through constitutional means, but gospel-centered means. Gospel-centered means. I don't want to get into this. Maybe I should skip this. But I can just say this. We preach the gospel from this church. We equip the saints to spread the gospel into all the world. And that gospel has influence on our world. Praise God that it does. I don't care what your eschatology is. If you're on the sidelines, you're missing it. Now, that being said, I'm, that, I'm sure that will be misunderstood, but I hope not. That being said, we have to be careful as a gospel-preaching church to partner with any old um, church that's not gospel-centered over the sake of social issues and therefore undermine the gospel. We've got to use wisdom there. Am I right? So gospel-centered means. Third consideration, support adoption. Support adoption. And to do that, you support Christian pregnant. One of the ways you do that, I think a powerful way, is support Christian pregnancy resource centers. So, in this regard, in Lakeville, the Amnion Crisis Pregnancy Center is wonderful. Always gives the gospel to all those who come into their clinic. Let me give you one testimony. I'll change the name. It's not the real name. This year, Jesse will be celebrating her first Mother's Day after giving birth to a baby boy, Ryan, last November. Jesse came to Amnion several months earlier for a free pregnancy test. The test results were positive, and she cried, and she was overwhelmed because she was 17 and pregnant. She explained to us at Amnion that she thought that abortion was her best choice. 
We, and this is Amnion employees and volunteers speaking, we provided her with a free ultrasound, and she saw her developing baby for the very first time. This changes everything. I'm going to have my baby, cried Jesse. Most importantly, Jesse's lay counselor shared the gospel message with her. Jesse was encouraged to repent of her sin and make Jesus Christ the Lord of her life. And throughout the months of biblical counseling during her pregnancy, Jesse's life turned from one which was full of partying and rebellion to one that became committed to Christ and involved in a strong Bible teaching church. Now, this is a wonderful ministry for us to support and to pray for and to perhaps volunteer with. And there's a table right outside that door with bottles to raise money and more information about Amnion Crisis Pregnancy Center in the foyer. I encourage you all to visit after this service. But brothers and sisters, the battle for the life of the unborn is not ultimately intellectual, not ultimately political. Praise God for that. No, the battle is waged for the life of the unborn baby. It's a spiritual battle. And the primary weapon of our warfare, the Word of God. But if you're going to do that without prayer, number four, prayer continually. Practical step, prayer continually. We must pray. We must be a church that prays. We must pray, brothers and sisters. Pray for revival in our nation. Pray that the gospel will take root in the hearts of people. We must get on our knees and pray for the Lord to protect the unborn child, to bring repentance to those who further the cause of abortion. Let me give you some direction on prayer. It's what Pastor Dan preached in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Men, lead in prayer in this church, in your families. Lead in prayer on behalf of all categories of men including kings, including those in government. So pray for leaders here in Minnesota, for them to hear the people, to soften their hearts, to overturn these proposed laws. The Senate is voting on Protect Reproductive Act this week. Pray and fast for that decision this week. And let me give you another thought. You ought to pray for doctors. You ought to pray for medical doctors that you know. My brother-in-law is a medical doctor. I'm in the medical field and radiology. It's ugly out there. My son's in medical school. Christian medical doctors can have a wonderful influence. Here's one story my brother-in-law told me. A 19-year-old young lady came into his clinic my brother-in-law, and he, uh, he delivered the baby, gave the baby, and, and, and was going to deliver the baby, and that day give the baby up for adoption. The adopted parents were waiting in the other room, anticipating meeting and naming their baby. The young woman gave birth, but she couldn't get rid of it. She's just like... I... And she was sad to see her baby go in that moment. The young woman's mother, after the delivery, said to her, quotes, if I knew this was going to be all this much trouble, I would have insisted that you have it aborted. And I quote. The girl broke down. The mom walked out of the room. My brother-in-law is standing there as an MD believer. He ministered to this young woman. I know this is hard. 
what you did was wonderful. You did the right thing. God has a plan for this baby. And he went on to share the gospel with her and encourage her about her brave choice not to destroy the God's work of art. Hospital privileges aside. We need to pray for our Christian doctors in this nation who are in the trenches. And finally, we come to the theological significance. Practical steps, there are four. Theological significance, I want to highlight three briefly. (laughs) Number one, there's one source of abortion, and it is sin. Jesus said, if you're going to come after me, you must deny yourself. Dr. Larry, I won't give a full name, I guess, explains that, quotes, the underlying reason people want to have the option of abortion is to maintain sexual freedom and personal convenience, end quotes. Yes, it is said that I'm, is abortion because, of, uh, because I value freedom, abortion because, because this should be a wanted child, they're going to have a bad life, abortion because you've got to have consistent ethics of life, you conservative, all the way from the beginning, I know the argument. But I'm telling you, and I'll speak boldly here, it is sin. And sin always flows from two sources. It flows from what? Self and a low view of Scripture. The real reason most aborted children uh, don't live is because of selfishness. I must exercise my rights. I have the right to choose. I do not want to take responsibility for my actions. I do not want to be inconvenienced. I, 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 I. But if people really believe that God says it and that settles it, put my feelings aside, put my life aside, it settles it. Then they wouldn't sin against God. It's self and it's a low view of Scripture that leads to sin. And sin leads to guilt. And there's implications for professing believers, for true believers, for everybody in this. Sin leads to guilt. And there's devastating consequences for abortion. There's guilt and there's heartache. I don't care who you are and where you've been and whether you're saved or unsaved. There's regret. There's 248% chance higher chance of suicide the year after an abortion according to a 13-year study of the entire population of Finland. And that leads me then, one source is sin, one hope is Jesus. Now, perhaps you're here this morning, you're listening to this, and you have had an abortion. And you can't stand hearing this sermon. And you're suffering. How would you say, sister, your sin is gone. This is the gospel. Isn't it an amazing gospel? It has been paid for in full and completely by our Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. Your certificate of debt has been erased. You're forgiven. It's over. He's cast it. Out as far as the east is from the west. It's drowned in the deepest seas. Psalm 103, 
Verse 8 says, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear, who fear him. He, for he himself, watch this, he knows our frame. That He is mindful that we are but dust. Hope in Jesus Christ alone, you are whiter than snow. And you still have regret, I know, but you have to believe all of us in our sin, right? We have to believe that His grace is greater than all of our sin. And we move forward boldly in Christ, clean and righteous in Him. And like Paul, the chief of sinners, the murderer of Christians, said, Brethren, I do not regard myself as laying hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Yes, there's one source is sin. One hope is Jesus. And all of that leads to this. There's only one option. It's adoption. There's one option, adoption. There are couples who struggle to have children, and God has closed their womb in His secret providence, yet they desire children, and adoption can be such a tremendous blessing to them and to a mother who cannot take care of her baby. Consider the two options here, abortion, Death and murder, guilt and shame and depression compared to adoption with joy and new life and blessing and a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, we live in a dark world of sin, don't we? How can the, one of the chief pictures of the gospel be adoption without the backdrop of what we've been speaking of? God has such a heart for the orphan. God has such a heart for the abandoned, the lost, the discarded, the rejected. If you're not going to listen to this, just write this down. Ezekiel chapter 16. Speaking, listen to God speaking. Ezekiel 16 verse 5. No, I looked with pity on you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for you were abhorred on the day you were born. And God says to that discarded child, when I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you, while you were in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you, while you were in your blood, live. I made you numerous like plants in the field. Then you grew up, became tall, and reached the age for fine ornaments. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. Then I passed by you. I saw you. And behold, you were at that, 
You were at the time for love, so I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. And I swore to you and entered into covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord God. Then I bathed you with water. I washed off your blood from you and I anointed you with oil. I also clothed you with an embroidery cloth and put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet. I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. This is a picture of adoption. This is what God did for each one of us individually in salvation. He saw us in our sin, squirming in our blood, discarded and left for dead. And He came for us and He came after us and got us and cleaned us up and brought us in His home, clothed us with a robe, a robe of His righteousness, and washed off the blood and the death of our sin and brought us into our family. And so that we can call God our own father. And you're not a half son as an adopted child. You are a real son or we're in real trouble. And that eternally. Loved of God, forgiven by God, known by God, members of his family, legal heirs. Because if we're children, then heirs, as the Bible says, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And so there's a hope as an heir laid up for us in heaven, an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. As one theologian said, well, what is Christ's inheritance? What is Christ's inheritance by right has become ours by grace. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. What kind of love is this? When the Son, capital S, was willing to be discarded, cursed, and cast out in bloodiness... And say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And to take all of that sin and everything associated with it, the shame and the rejection and the guilt of it, and become outcast so that we could be welcomed and accepted as sons. So that illegitimate children might become sons of the Most High God. For we have not received a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But we have received the spirit of adoption as sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. Aborted babies can't cry Abba to a physical daddy. But the Father hears their pleas and that eternally. Do we hear them? Father, we are left speechless that we could be called children of God. That you loved us not because we were lovely or worthy of your consideration. But you saw us, chose to love us, set your love upon us. We could do nothing. We were cast out, castaways, dead in trespasses and sin in our blood. Thank you for coming to get us. 
we praise you for saving us. We praise you for the doctrine of adoption, and we praise you for the reality of adoption in our world. We pray that you would, that you would further adoption in our families and our culture, and that we wouldn't simply oppose abortion, but we would support in every way possible adoption, the picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I do pray for this church. I pray that you would minister to us through this maybe difficult sermon in some ways, that we perhaps said some things that we don't everybody agree with exactly how it was said. But I pray that we would, that anything here that is not right, you would flush. It would be completely gone. And that we would keep what is, what is true and beautiful and right. And that, Lord, we would not just be a hearer of the word today, but we would be a doer. And we ask that you would move in our land, in our culture, that you would please be with the senators this week as they hear the arguments, as they listen to their consciences crying out from within and from without, when they follow their consciences and what they know to be true from their mom and dad and their grandma and grandpa who taught them on their knee years ago. Lord, revive our land. Make the word of God to go forth. May we not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Give us wisdom in the days and weeks to come. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.